Okay, so you should now have that. And uh, we're going to really go crazy and try to share a different screen at a point later on. So we'll see what happens. We may crash the whole internet when we do that. So uh, I wanna just welcome all of y'all here tonight. It is great joy to have you with us. And many of us are experiencing weather that's not very pleasant right at the moment. And so uh, it is great to join in the warmth of fellowship and uh, some good C.S. Lewis uh, truth as we uh, walk through this class tonight. So I wanted to begin with a word of prayer and then we will say our scripture verse together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. I thank you for each person who is sacrificing their time to be with us. Lord, we thank you for this great book that you caused C.S. Lewis to write. Lord, we thank you for the way that it has impacted so many people since 1941 when these first talks were given. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might uh, understand this material and that it would not be just more knowledge, but knowledge that draws us more deeply into our relationship with you. We thank you for all these things and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So speaking of knowledge, here is our about that, not just head knowledge, but knowledge of Christ through the experience of being in relationship with him. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God, Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that that pertain to life and God's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I'm always tempted to preach a sermon every time I read this verse but I just want to point out again that part where it says things that pertain to life and godliness. That is a very strong statement, and it is one of the blessings that we have in Christ. In this book, I think, Mere Christianity helps us to unpack some of those blessings. For anybody who happens to be new tonight, we continue to attract new people. I just want to welcome you and say there are three approaches for class. You can be on the beach, which means you come or you don't come. You pay attention or you don't pay attention. Uh, you go out to dinner, but leave your camera running. Whatever you like to do, we're just glad to have you on whatever terms you can manage. Snorkeling is when you are coming and participating, but you don't really do any extra reading except on those things that really tickle your fancy. And that is great too. And then we have some who are scuba diving. Scuba diving means that you go down the rabbit hole with me on some of these things that I find to be interesting and challenging. And uh, I'm glad some of y'all uh, doing that track with me as well. I also wanna just remind people that there is an email list uh, that gets a summary sent each week as well as some tidbits. There will be some tidbits coming over Christmas while we're not meeting. Um, so if you're not on my email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston. 
and just send me a little note and I'll get you added. I got several of those today. So glad to have those folks with us on the email. Couple of things about Mere Christianity. It is an unusual book. Um, it's not like reading a John Crime novel. Uh, it's not a book to sit down and try to read in one sitting. Uh, some people are difficult, but it encourage you to take it slowly, one chapter at a time, read it out loud. If there's a part that's confusing to you, read it a couple of times. And then the C.S. Lewis Doodle uh, is a great resource for being able to understand a little bit more deeply um, some of these concepts. So to, if I can get it to work, we're going to listen to another piece of music. And this piece of music one that is very special and somewhat unusual. And I am virtually 100% sure that no one will know what it is. Uh, but if you're quick, I think the title of it is going to show up on the screen. Okay, so hopefully the PowerPoint is back. The PowerPoint back up. Okay, good. So I don't really know why that didn't work. Um, whenever I see unstable internet, it makes me break out in hives. But I will, I will send you the link uh, first thing in the morning. But what that was going to be uh, is a really lovely medieval motet that's called uh, and it is a motet by the composer Jean Mouton, uh, who was writing in the 15th century. And the reason I was trying to share that with you, not only is it a great Advent hymn, but Lewis was a great medievalist, and he particularly loved the type of music that was popular in the 1400s. Uh, there are not a lot of people that particularly prefer the music of the 1400s, uh, but Lewis was one of them. And that piece is just beautiful because it is a canon or a round uh, that builds on itself over and over and over again. So when I send you the link tomorrow morning, uh, do take a few minutes and listen to it. So um, just want to review quickly our context to remind us that we are in England in wartime. It is the darkest days of World War II. It is uh, the Blitz, it is the time that Lewis is the train from Oxford to give these talks that the head of religious broadcasting, Jimmy Welch, had caused to happen. Uh, the prefaces, uh, the first 1942 one was the preface and the broadcast talks. And Lewis starts off with this disarming humility that he's not anybody in particular. He's just a regular guy helping us out here. And then the printed preface in the actual published book, he unpacked meaning of mere Christianity. And as we've been talking about the past few weeks, he starts in a very unusual place. He starts with the universal and ancient question, who are we? How did we and the cosmos come to be? I.e., what is the meaning and purpose of life? Why am I here? And he doesn't start with evidence about Jesus or a discussion of religion, but this universal hunger for meaning and purpose. This is a thing that will push right now in the time of pandemic that we're in. So many people are struggling with issues of meaning and purpose and wondering about these big questions. And so it's a great opportunity 
for us when we build relational bridges with people who don't know Christ um, to begin to talk about these things. And this first book, he gives this great title, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. Kind of reminds me of that 70s book, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Meaning of the Universe. It's that same sort of idea. And he starts off with the law of human nature. Um, he hits some objections that we talked about last week, uh, the reality of the law that we're gonna talk about this week, what be lies behind the law, which will be in January, and then we have cause to be uneasy. Well, that ought to get your attention right there. We have cause to be uneasy. So you can tell he's gonna be going somewhere with all of that. So one of the things that I just wanna remind us about is that sometimes when you read these things, it's hard to understand or you get part of it, you don't get part of it, you think, well, I believe in Jesus, so what does it matter? But it's really important that we understand about philosophy and worldview so that we don't accidentally fall prey to all of the different ways that our culture is pressing on us with different narratives. So holding on to the context is important. Uh, remembering that a lot of people were wondering whether they would live through the night when there's planes with the bombs dropping. And so uh, as we live in this time of pandemic where so many people are falling seriously ill with this virus, uh, it is a reminder to be thinking about what we're here for and who God is. So last week, uh, we talked about the some objections chapter. And I want to just run through a little bit from chapter one and chapter two for context. Chapter one, basically two points. Humans know the law of nature. They know what they should do, but they don't do it. They break it. They are not like uh, rocks that are absolutely subject to the law of gravity if you drop them off a building a rock can't suddenly decide oh i don't want to fall today i'd rather fly up in the air up into a cloud it doesn't work that way but humans can decide whether to obey the law of nature or not and so in some objections chapter he talks about the fact that this moral law the law of what we know we ought to do it's not just herd instinct and he says it's not always just following the strongest instinct. And he uses the example of when there is somebody, if you're walking along the battery in Charleston and you see a person struggling who's fallen off the battery wall and is in the water and they're yelling, help me, help me. Part of you wants to just keep walking and hope that there's some police or Coast Guard around to help the person. But if you start walking away, you will start feeling this nagging in your mind that you should really help that person. And then you'll have a little mental conversation. Well, I don't really want to, but then you will also hear a third voice saying, you may not want to, but you know it's the right thing to do. And that's what Lewis is talking about here. And he says, no instinct is always good. Just like a note on the piano, Sometimes a G flat is a beautiful note on a piano, and other times it sounds like somebody dropped a glass in a restaurant uh, because it's so out of place in the music. And so 
he uses the example of you would think the instinct to love an instinct that you can always follow all the time but it sort of depends on what you mean by love and lewis points out that love which is not tempered by justice is not a good thing uh, he then points out that moral law and social convention are not the same thing um, he says that social conventions things that we choose to do in society are like which side of the road we drive on or where you put your hands on the dinner table uh, as we talked about last week in France you'd better have your hands in sight on the table but in the States they should be in your lap so part of the idea here is that the law of human nature is based in truth rather than convention and he says this, this is a really important quotation. The moment that you say one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard. One of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is something different from either. If your moral ideas can be truer and those of Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. And this is just a complicated way of saying when people say that's not fair, they are making appeal to some sort of standard, some sort of thing that they think everyone knows is the standard of fairness. Now, I want to take a little uh, diversion here for just a moment um, to talk a little bit about this moral law, the law of human nature versus the law of original sin. One of the things that we believe as Christians is that all of us are hopelessly and helplessly broken and corrupt, and that we don't wanna do the right thing, that our self-preservation instinct causes us to want to do all kinds of things, to get what we want when we want it. Uh, when you go to the store and there's a line of 20 people waiting, what you want to do because of original sin is to go shove your way up to the front and say, I'm here, I'm the most important person in the store, stop what you're doing and wait on me. And what Lewis is saying here is that that is absolutely true, that that instinct is very much part of the human condition. But what he also is saying is that even though we all have that instinct that we want what we want when we want it, that we also know somewhere inside us that we shouldn't do that. We know that when we do those things, um, it's wrong. There's, it's kind of like there's a governor, if you were uh, riding a school bus uh, back in the good old days in the 70s, uh, one of the things that was very popular for public school school buses was to put a speed governor on the engine where the bus couldn't go more than 35 miles an hour. I guess they were worried about bus drivers that thought they were race car drivers. But the point of that is that this voice within us that tells us not to do those things, even though we don't always obey it, that's the law that Lewis is talking about is the moral law and the law of human nature. He's not saying that we're good or that we want to do the right thing all the time, but there is a voice within us that's telling us we should do the right thing, um, which you might want to call your conscience, if you will, that way of looking at it, but that that is something that's very hard to explain 
why we should have that. Uh, just mere evolutionary theory doesn't explain that. He also gives a couple of caveats, and the most important one is the difference between uh, when you look at differences of morality versus difference of belief about facts. And he used the example of people saying, oh, it would be terrible when you look back at the Salem witch trials when they put people to death. And Lewis says, well, of course, when you believe there's no such thing as witches, then it's a terrible thing to do that and have these mock crazy trials and then these horrible ways of seeing whether people would float and then if they didn't, they would be killed. Um, those kinds of things, Lewis says, the problem is that it's not so much a difference of morality as a difference of belief about facts. Because Lewis says that if we truly believed we had witches among us, people that could look at any one of you on your screen and go zap and you would fall down dead or they would curse your children or something like that, if we really believed there were people like that, we wouldn't want to just say, oh, that's great, just do your own thing. Uh, we would want to put them in jail or we would want to execute them or something. There would be some sort of punishment. So that's a very quick and inadequate summary of that chapter. Um, I would encourage you, if you're struggling with that chapter, go back and spend some time with it and the analogies there. So the third chapter, is the reality of the law. And he starts off by reviewing and saying, first, that there are two odd things, things we've noticed that should make us scratch our heads and say, hmm, first, that men are haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior that they ought to practice, what you might call fair play or decency or morality or law of nature. And then secondly, that they do not in fact do that. We expect other people to obey the law, to do those things that are right, but we are always finding this as a list of excuses a mile long about why we don't have to keep the law. And so Lewis then goes into an example about why this is true and why humans are different. This is about nature and laws. And you will see there's a lovely picture of Sir Isaac Newton there uh, on your screen. And Isaac Newton is famous because he is the one who discovered gravity or who at least was able to write it up in such a way that scientists accepted it. Isaac Newton was a Christian student at Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, which was right down the road from where Lewis was a professor in his last post in academia at Maudlin College, Cambridge. So here's what Lewis has to say about this. If you take a thing like a stone or a tree, it is what it is. And there seems no sense in saying it ought to have been otherwise. Of course, you may say a stone is the wrong shape if you want to use it for a rockery or that a tree is a bad tree because it does not give you as much shade as you expected. But all you mean, a stone or tree, does not happen to be convenient for some purpose of your own. You're not, except as a joke, blaming them, blaming the stone or tree for that. You really know that given the weather and the soil, the tree could not have been any different. 
What we, from our point of view, call a tree is obeying the laws of its nature just as much as a good one. It follows that what we usually call the laws of nature, the way weather works on a tree, for example, may not really be laws in the strict sense, but only in a manner of speaking. When you say that falling stones always obey the law of gravitation, is not this much the same as saying that the law only means what stones always do. You do not really think when a stone is let go, it suddenly remembers that it's under orders to fall to the ground. You only mean in that in fact, it does fall. In other words, you cannot be sure that there is anything over and above the fact. Okay, so back to Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton discovered this law and talks about how stones do what they do. And there's no ought or moral principle there. So Lewis moves on to his next point and says how men do behave versus how men ought to behave. So the laws of nature as applied to stones or trees may only mean what nature in fact does. But if you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it is a different matter. That law certainly does not mean what human beings in fact do. For as I said before, many of them do not obey this law at all, and none of them obey it completely. The law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them, but the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. So hopefully that's something we can all relate to. Many of us uh, in our confession of sin uh, that we pray in church, uh, pray for forgiveness for the things that we have done and for the omission of the things that we ought to have done that we didn't do. That's exactly what Lewis is talking about, that we know what we should do, but we don't do it. Even well, I won't go into that. There are hundreds of examples of that in my own life, and I'm sure we all have plenty. And so he then goes on to an interesting point about convenience. He says, this is not merely inconvenience when there's something that someone does wrong. So he says, when you say a man ought not to act as he does, is that the same as saying that a stone is the wrong shape? namely that what he's doing happens to be inconvenient to you. A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first, and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man and do not blame the first. I'm not angry, so he's not angry at the person who got there legitimately before him and is seating in, sitting quietly reading his newspaper. But if they're trying to get on the train and the guy knocks Lewis out of the way and then throws himself into the seat, holds his arms up so Lewis can't sit down, Lewis is going to blame that man. So he says, I'm not angry um, with the first. He's not angry again, except for a moment before he comes to his senses, with the man who trips me up by accident. I am angry with the man who tries to trip me up, even if he does not succeed. Yet the first has hurt me, and the second has not. Now, this is a really important point. It's not the convenience or the actual injury that results. It's the motive 
that we're looking at. It's the motive that gets us upset with people. So that brings them to this point, that decent behavior is not equal to what is good for society as a whole. The law of decent behavior is not just that. Some people say that the decent conduct does not mean what pays each particular person at a particular moment. Still, it means what pays the human race as a whole. Human beings, after all, have some sense. They see that you cannot have real safety or happiness except in a society where everyone plays fair. And it is because they see this that they try to behave decently. Now, of course, it is perfectly true that safety and happiness can only come from individuals, classes, and nations being honest and fair and kind to each other. It is one of the most important truths in the world. But as an explanation of why we feel as we do about right and wrong, it just misses the point. If we ask, why ought I to be unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, why should I care what's good for society, except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. You are saying what is true, but you are not getting any further. So if that didn't make sense to you, uh, I encourage you to look at the picture on your screen, which is of a football game at a British public school, much like the school that Lewis went to as an adolescent. And Lewis hated games. He liked intellectual games, but he said he was very clumsy. And so some games he could do, but football was not one of them. And he said he always got run over every time he played and it was not much fun. So he has this great analogy. He says, if a man asked, what was the point of playing football? It would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. And you would really only be saying that football was football, which is true, but not worth saying. So what Lewis is getting at here is that if you say the point of football is to score points, you're right. However, the reason that you would play football as opposed to doing any other activity is not about scoring points. There has to be some reason that you would want to go play football. So that is what Lewis is trying to get at about the circular reasoning here. All right, so the next point he makes is that this whole idea that men ought to be unselfish is not simply a fact, not a mere fancy, and not just a statement about convenience. He says, men ought to be unselfish, ought to be fair. Not that men are unselfish, nor that they like being unselfish, but they ought to be. That's that whole idea of original sin again. People are not unselfish, they are selfish. And they don't like being unselfish, but they somewhere know that they should be. The moral law or the law of human nature is not simply a fact about human behavior in the same way as the law of gravitation is, or maybe simply a fact about how heavy objects behave. It's not a mere fancy or fantasy, for we cannot get rid of the idea 
And most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if we did. Lastly, it is not simply a statement about how we should like men to behave for our own convenience. For the behavior we call bad or unfair is not exactly the same as the behavior we find inconvenient and may even be the opposite. So a lot of times we may call things fair or unfair, bad or good, but they may be things that are in the abstract for us. They're not really hitting our personal experience, but we still have a sense about them, whether they are right or not. So what Lewis says is this helps show us again that this rule of right and wrong, this idea of knowing what's right and wrong, the law of human nature, even though we don't obey it, must be a real thing. He says, consequently, this rule of right and wrong or law of human nature or whatever you call it must somehow or other be a real thing, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. And yet it is not a fact in the ordinary sense in the same way as our actual behavior is a fact. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that in this particular case, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior, and yet quite definitely real, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. So this is kind of the, the conclusion that Lewis is drawing out of this chapter about the moral law. And basically what he's trying to say is that human beings alone out of all of the created universe have this law that is specific to them, but they can choose whether to obey it or not. It's just as if, if you try to compare humans to diamonds, for example, diamonds don't have a choice about whether they are uh, really good instruments to use for precision cutting. A diamond can't say, I don't want to do that, or today I'm just gonna shatter rather than do that. The way that diamonds are made, it is part of their nature that they perform that task. There's no volition in there at all. But he says for humans, we have a choice about whether to obey this law. So what he's gonna do when we get back in January is start explaining some possibilities about where this law or this idea of the law might come from. So I would commend to you um, over the break that we will take for the next few weeks, even though you will have, I hope, lots of wonderful and joyous celebration of the feast of Christmas and worship and lots of great time with your family. It will also be a great time to review some of this and look at the C.S. Lewis doodle. So what I'm gonna do now is completely shift gears and do a little Christmas tidbit with you um, that some of you have seen before. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but this is a little uh, piece that Lewis wrote in 1954, not long after the published uh, book of Mere Christianity came out. And Lewis, a very able mimic 
of other people's writing. And most of you uh, probably did not study Herodotus unless you were ancient history majors in school. But Herodotus is one of the great historians of the ancient world. And there are more things by him that we have uh, that depict what life was like in the ancient world. He was kind of, in addition to a historian, a kind of a cultural anthropologist. So Lewis did what he called a supposal. What would happen if Herodotus had showed up in this land of Nyaturb um, during the month of December, what would he have seen? So let me just read some of this and then I'll chat with you a little bit about it. So it's entitled Xmas and Christmas, a chapter from Herodotus. And it is beautifully written in Herodotus's style by Lewis. And he says, and beyond this, there lies in the ocean Turn toward the west and north the island of Nyaturb, which Hecadius indeed declares to be the same size and shape as Sicily, but it is larger, though in calling it triangular, a man would not miss the mark. It is densely inhabited by men who wear clothes not very different from the other barbarians who occupy the northwestern parts of Europe, though they do not agree with them in language. These islanders, surpassing all the men of whom we know in patience and endurance, use the following customs. In the middle of winter, when fogs and rains most abound, does that sound familiar? When fogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival, which they call Xmas. And for 50 days, they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Nyaturbians believe their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches as their ancestors used or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Nyaturbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them so that there's great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out in the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift, which every friend will send to him, so he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, understanding the custom, 
put forth all kinds of trumpery and whatever being useless and ridiculous they've been unable to sell throughout the year, they now sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Nyaturbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things, such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year being made into the gifts. But during the 50 days, the oldest, poorest, and most miserable of these citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk about the marketplaces being disguised as chronos. And the sellers of gifts, no less than the purchasers, become pale and weary because of the crowds and the fogs, so that any man who came into a Nyaturbian city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen, fallen on Nyaturb. The 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech, the Xmas rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens being exhausted with the rush lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as on other days and crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. For wine is so dear among the Nyaturbians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he is well intoxicated. So just a little break from that. Uh, what you will see here is Lewis describing what he imagines what it would look like if an alien landed in England during the Christmas rush, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Why are people doing all these things? Why are there all these cards with snow and carriages and coaches uh, when there aren't any of those anywhere else in evidence? Why are people getting so upset about gifts and cards and all of that? And you've probably figured out that Nyaturb is Breton spelled backwards. And part of the irony that Lewis is trying to get at here, because all of us are in the know about Xmas, is that this is supposed to be the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. It is supposed to be where we are brought in awe and wonder to the story of the incarnation, how God who is beyond space and time and is the author of all creation, humbled himself to take the form of a baby and enter into his own creation to bring salvation to all of the human race. And what Lewis is trying to get at here is that the focus on all of these other customs has crushed out the true meaning of Christmas. And so this is what he's gonna get at in these next little paragraphs. So he says, such then are their customs about Xmas, but the few among the Nyaturbians have also a festival separate into themselves called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite to the majority of the Nyaturbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds 
adoring the child. The reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know, but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of those temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas, for it appeared to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, it is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas, but would that Zeus would put in the minds of the Nyaturbians to keep Xmas at some other time or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should be at Christmas, but in Xmas, there's no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the rush, he replied, it is a stranger, a racket. Using, as I suppose, the words of some oracle and speaking unintelligibly to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis. But what Hecadius says that Xmas and Christmas are the same is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And secondly, the most part of the Nyaturbians, not believing the religion of the few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a God they do not believe in. And now enough about Nyaturb. So there's a lot of irony in there, but there's also a lot of profound truth and a great reminder for those of us who are Christians to be merry, to experience the joy of Christmas, to participate in the customs of the culture, but to never ever let them take center place, to make sure that we are like those that Lewis describes with the shining faces who go to celebrate the feast where there's the fair lady and the animals and the infant who is the source of light, who is the one that brings salvation. So I will uh, send that out uh, in the email so you can reread and perhaps ponder that a little bit if you would like. So let's end with our little uh, selection from the end of Mere Christianity, which is all about the theme of self-sacrifice, that theme that is part and parcel of the incarnation we're getting ready to celebrate, part and parcel of Jesus's life and one of the great principles of the kingdom of God, self-sacrifice. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay, but look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. 
Dear Lord, as we enter into the last part of the season of Advent and look towards celebrating the wonder of the incarnation when you came as a helpless babe entering into your creation. Lord, as we prepare for that time, we pray that you would kindle our hearts anew with love for you, that you would awake our hearts to wonder and joy, and Lord, that the truth of what Lewis is teaching in this book would resonate more and more deeply in our souls. We pray that you would equip us to share the hope and the joy that is within us with a world that is so desperately in need of your love and saving grace. We thank you for this time and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.